The title of today's sermon is 70 Weeks and is taken from Daniel 9, verses 20 through 27. I've been preaching through Daniel, something I never thought I would do. You see, I'm a general practitioner. I'm not an expert in prophecy. But finally, after 30 years of preaching and teaching the Bible, I felt prepared to do so. And now we've gotten to Daniel chapter 9, which is, in my estimation, the most important scriptural passage in the Old Testament. And how can you weigh them? But to me, it bears the most significance because it lays out what takes place in the rest of human history. And so I've given you, in preparation for that, a handout which speaks of the four kingdoms that Daniel saw in his visions in chapter 7 and 8, and then it gives a breakdown of the 70s that we're going to be studying today in the bottom of that. On the other side, you have the life of Daniel chronologically compared to the Babylonian Empire and the Medo-Persian Empire, a time scheme to put all this in place for you. Finally, followed by a universal time scheme from the time of Artaxerxes to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, this is a very important section of Scripture, and I trust you will leave illuminated and committed to being a premillennial pre-tribulationist based on what Scripture teaches and not on anything else. So let's ask God to guide and direct us in our thinking and in our study. Father, we thank you so much for this passage of Scripture, this ancient book which comes alive in our thinking and our minds, Lord, that brings us hope for the future. We look forward to the rapture of our Lord Jesus Christ and then returning with him to fight the battles that will lead to his kingdom. Help us, Father, to understand this text. And to apply it rightly to our lives today, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine for just a moment, you are a diplomat, a member of the U.S. State Department, and you are serving in Germany. The year is 1941, and the radio has just announced that Pearl Harbor has been bombed by the Japanese. You then learn that Nazi Germany has declared war on the United States. So you stop the important work that you're doing, destroying the classified information in your possession, to pray. You intercede for America, asking God to save her from her enemies. And when you lift your head, having finished in prayer, there standing before you is a man. And he immediately begins to answer your prayer. He tells you what will happen during the Second World War. But not only that, he tells you what will happen all the way to the end of time. I bet you'd be blown away. Well, that's exactly what happens to Daniel. He's praying for the people in the land of Israel. He's physically in the former capital of Babylon... And he's confessing the sins of his brother Israelites. As you know, they've rebelled against God. They were deserving of the punishment that God meted out against them. But, David, but Daniel proceeded to plead with the Lord to restore his people, to restore them to the land, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the temple therein. Well, with that as our introduction, would you turn with me then to Daniel chapter 9? We pick up in verse 20, which is on page 894, I believe, in our Pew Bible. As you know, the whole context for this chapter is that Daniel was reading the scroll of Jeremiah, which prophesied the end of the Babylonian captivity in 70 years. Daniel figured it out in his head. That time was about to end. 
And yet he still had many unanswered questions from the visions that he had already received and now coupled with that Jeremiah's predictions. Such as, what happens after the captivity ends? Where do the exiles go? What happens to the land and to the city of Jerusalem which were lying in desolation? So God answered Daniel's prayer in a very surprising way. He immediately sends Daniel the archangel Gabriel. Now, as you'll remember, the Lord had dispatched Gabriel to Daniel before. He was the one who came and interpreted the visions of chapter 7 and 8. But now Gabriel is sent to give Daniel specific instructions about the future of Israel. Looking at verse 20, Daniel writes, Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplications before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God. Well, the context of this couldn't be any clearer. He's in his prayer place. He's speaking to the Lord. He's confessing their sins and his own. Daniel agrees with God that he is a sinner. He confesses my sin. I find it very interesting that nowhere in the scriptures do we find any articulation of a sin committed by Daniel. In fact, Daniel's enemies, when they tried to entrap him for the king of Babylon, they looked for something to accuse him, and they found no grounds to do so. They left no stone unturned, but they kept coming up empty. Well, that's why Daniel is a type of Christ. He is a righteous man. He's praying for the Jewish people who are indeed sinful, as we know. And yet Daniel includes himself here. My sin. He's confessing my sin. Daniel said he's making his supplications to God and he's praying on behalf of the Lord and his holy mountain. That means Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And suddenly he's interrupted. Look with me at verse 21. While I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, who I'd seen in previous visions, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Daniel gets his answer to prayer pretty quick. Wouldn't you like to have your prayers answered that way? He hasn't even finished praying, and he's still speaking, and all of a sudden, standing before him is... Gabriel. Gabriel is an angel in human form. <clears throat> now, Daniel knows Gabriel. He's seen him before. He interpreted his visions in chapter 7 and 8. You remember the visions of the, the ram and the goat, the second and the third world empires. Well, Gabriel appears to Daniel, notice the timing, the time of the evening sacrifice. Now, that's not the sacrifices in Babylon. That's the sacrifices that would be taking place at the temple in Jerusalem. So it must be around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, that's when the priests came in and made the animal sacrifices and the people prayed to God. Now, as you're aware, Daniel prayed three times a day, so this must have been one of those times. But Daniel wasn't in Jerusalem. The prayers of the saints in Jerusalem weren't being offered because there was no sacrifices being made. The temple had been destroyed. And yet Daniel, in his faithfulness, kept practicing the act of praying at the time of the sacrifices. So while his body might have been in Babylon, his heart and mind were in Jerusalem. Truth is, it had been 66 long years since the sacrifices had been offered in Jerusalem. 
Dave, can I ask you to, would you get me a cup of water? <coughs> Thank you. But Daniel continued to observe the appointed time of prayer and worship of God. We see here that the angel Gabriel was sent by God to give him instructions about the future in verse 21, 22. He gave me instructions, says Daniel, and he talked with me saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight and understanding. That's really important for us to see. Gabriel came to him with instructions for the express purpose of giving him insight and understanding. That's important because there's a biblical principle contained within this that we should understand about prophecy. You see, prophecy should be understood. You should gain insight from it. Thank you, sir. Got a tickle in there. That means if you understand prophecy and gain insight for it, it must be literal. If it's not literal then you're not gaining any insight from it. You're not really understanding. The Bible clearly says here, prophecy in the Bible must be approached from a literal interpretive position. If Daniel was going to get anything out of it, if he was going to comprehend it, then it must be literal rather than allegorical, as our many friends in mainstream Christendom and Calvinists take prophecy and understand it that way. You see, if Daniel wasn't given a literal understanding of this prophecy, then he'd have to be looking for a hidden meaning buried somehow in an allegorical interpretation. You can find on the handout when this prophecy was given on the life of Daniel, if if that interests you. But it is at this time... Thirteen years later, after the last prophecy of Daniel, chapter 8, that he was approached by Gabriel. So in other words, for 13 years he's remained confused over the understanding of what he has been told in these visions that he has received. The confusion might have been over such things as this. If if the Babylonian captivity was supposed to end in 70 years, and if those 70 years were almost over, why then did in the previous visions he received from God picture a further chastening of Israel by the Lord in the future? This lack of understanding that he had had caused him to be afraid. He was uncertain as to what the Lord was doing. Why was there this delay in the restoration of them from the captivity? Well, when Daniel was confused, afraid, and uncertain, he prayed to the Lord for an answer. God, help me in my confusion. And in doing so, God sent him new information through Gabriel about the prophetic calendar for Israel's future. Gabriel explains to him the timing of his arrival to Daniel, saying in verse 23, get this now, at the beginning of your supplication, at the very beginning of your prayer, God issued the command. The command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed. Give heed to the message and gain understanding from the vision. As soon as Daniel started to pray, God acted. He said to Gabriel, I want you to go down and tell... What, is God up? All right. I want you to go down and tell Daniel the answer to his questions. Isn't that awesome? Why? Well, the text tells us, that Daniel was highly esteemed. He was highly esteemed by God because he was a godly man. No, he was not perfect. He was a sinner by nature. But he was living a godly life. He was praying three times a day. He was trusting in the Lord. So Gabriel comes and gives Daniel this message. Not for his own needs. He's not praying stuff for himself. He's praying about the needs of his people. 
about the Jews, the Israelites. You see, we're always to understand the Bible, even prophecy, literally and personally. We're supposed to take the Bible personally. God's speaking to us about our lives, and that's how Daniel understands it. So let's examine Gabriel's message of 70 weeks, or 70 weeks of years, if you will. Beginning in verse 24. The first thing that we should notice is the extent of the prophecy. Daniel is told that it is 70 weeks. And then he is told six specific things that will be accomplished during those 70 weeks. We read in verse 24, The 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now let's take this in small bites. That's how you eat an elephant, right? First of all, the word that's translated as 70 weeks is the Hebrew word Shabuah. Shabuah. That's fun to say, isn't it? Let's all say that. Shabuah. 70 weeks, okay? It really is a definition of an unspecified unit. It literally means sevens. Sort of like we use the word dozens. A dozen. What do you got there? I got a dozen. A dozen what? I got a dozen donuts. Probably don't need them. I got a dozen eggs. I got a dozen light bulbs. Whatever shibua means. Seventy-sevens. That's the way he's using it here. Because it appears in the plural form. It's sevens, and when you make it plural, it's seventy-sevens. But he does so without specifying whether it's days, weeks, months, or years. So how do we understand what these seventy-sevens are? From the context. As you know, one of the principles of Scripture is context is... Huh? King. Context is king. When you want to know the meaning of something, you look at the context in which it is found. So context determines what this 77s will be. Days, weeks, months, or years. Well, looking back at the chapter, as Daniel began to pray and reading from the scroll of Jeremiah, he learns that the captives will be held for 70 years. Jeremiah was speaking of years. Seven, however, we also know in the larger context of Scripture is a very important number to the Jewish people. God had written seven indelibly on their hearts, if you will, and their minds. For example, in creation, God created during the seven-day week, right, of creation. Six days for, for creation activities, and the seventh day he rested. Exodus tells us, six days you you are to do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor. So the week the Jews were given by God was six days for work, but on the seventh day, the last day of the week, they rested. The Sabbath years for the nation of Israel found in Leviticus were based on These weeks as well. So we read, When you come into the land, in Leviticus, When you come into the land, which I shall give you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord, six years to sow, prune, and gather. But during the seventh year, the end of the week, if you will, the land shall have a Sabbath rest. The Jewish people were commanded then to allow the land to rest every seven years. Are you getting the picture? You can see it behind me in the units. Here we have 70 times 7. This is the past 490 years before they were taken into captivity. They failed, as I taught last week and the week before, to keep 
the Sabbath rest for the land. Every six years they were to let the land rest for one year. They failed to do that for 490 years or 70 weeks. Why did they go into captivity for 70 years? Because of their failure. So 70 times 7 equals 70 weeks of captivity. We shall see that future history, 490 years, will be worked out through the coming history before God fulfills his promises to Israel to send the Messiah. They were warned not to break the the command to give the land Sabbath rest. If they did, they they would spend, according to the warning, one year in captivity. One year for every sabbatic one year for every sabbatical year that they disobeyed. And so as you can see behind me on the overhead, four hundred and ninety years of disobedience are equal seventy years into captivity. In Second Chronicles and in the book of Leviticus, it states, and I'm drawing from both of those, let me read it to you. Until the land has enjoyed its Sabbath, all of the days of the desolation, it kept Sabbath until seventy years were complete. I will scatter you among the nations. Then the land will enjoy, will enjoy its rests, Sabbath rests, while you are in enemies' lands. The land will rest and enjoy its Sabbath. They are being punished for not obeying the clear commands of Scripture concerning the promised land. So their 70 times 7 or 490 years of disobedience to this command is now being punished by 70 years in captivity. Daniel will now introduce in this text a new series of multiples of seven. These series of seven-year periods called weeks equates to, again, 490 years. You see how equitable God is? The word weeks is just a convenient way of saying 77. Now in verse 24... The 70 weeks is to begin with a decree, as we see. It will begin with this decree, and it will finish, according to the Scriptures, the transgressions of Israel. Notice, it is defined as your people and your holy city. That's who um, is being punished for their transgressions. Your people and your holy city. In other words, the Jewish people, Daniel's kin, in the city is Jerusalem. Daniel had thought, hey, after the 70 years are up, we're going to all go back to the promised land and we're going to all live happily together ever after. He most likely believed that God would send the promised Messiah at that time, that his kingdom would come just as it had been promised to David. But there are two things that are very clear from this text. First, this prophecy is about and for the Jewish people. This is not about the church. This is to and about the Jewish people. And secondly, it concerns God's holy city, Jerusalem. Some people try sillily, in my estimation, to apply this to the church. The church was unknown at this time. It wasn't even on the radar until hundreds of years later. Secondly, this time period covered by this prophecy is 490 years. That is clear from the context. Seven, 77s or weeks is what's being talking, t- spoken about here. Each unit of a week covers a seven-year time period. There are four reasons why this has to be so. Now, the liberals try to poo-poo this. They try to say that this was just hypothetical, that that it was covering a large span of time, and the 490 years or the 77s is just a way, a figurative way of saying a long time. Well, we take this to be weeks for very good reason. First of all, Daniel has been concerned about the weeks, as I said, Uh, Not only from Jeremiah, but in his own writings, in chapter 9 and verses 1 and 2, he states, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which were revealed by the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah, 
for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Daniel's thinking 70 years. Reason number two is quite simple. It would be virtually impossible for all the things that are spoken of in the rest of this text to be accomplished in 490 days, 490 weeks, or 490 months. So it has to be years. Number three, the context in the book of Daniel, he defines weeks and days. He uses those terms, weeks and days, but he doesn't do so here. So the nomenclature is left open, except for the further context in which he speaks of years, and Jeremiah does as well. So uh, we see that Daniel's context points to it, and so does the larger context of the Bible speak of these times as years. For example, on the screen behind me, you can see three scriptural passages, one from, two from Daniel, one from Revelation, which speaks of three and one-half years. So, obviously, the context demands that we understand these, this time period as years. Today... We think in terms of tens. We think in terms of decades and centuries. We count our money in units of tens. We date our calendars by decades and and centuries, as I said. But the Jewish people always thought in terms of sevens or heptads. Seven days for a week. Sabbath rest, as I've spoken of earlier, was based on seven years and... All of this concludes with the fact that they were speaking of seven sevens, 77 years or 70 weeks, if you will. The, now we're going to look at the things that must transpire according to this verse in this 77 weeks or this 490 years. The first three things that will have to be accomplished, the Lord will have to do, is deal with the corporate sin of Israel once and for all. And the second three deal with the coming messianic kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first three are provided for by the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the last three are only realized at his second coming. All six will be completed before the institution of his messianic kingdom, and at the completion of the 490 years or 70 weeks, if you will. Each of these six things is marked by an infinity. Okay? I should say infinitive. An infinitive is a verb which is preceded by the word to. So the first thing the Lord must do for Israel is to finish the transgressions. That literally means to make an end to sins. You know, the Jews had been committing sins all along. They had been dissing the Lord. They had been going against the will of God. But the phrase here, to finish, is derived from the root word, which means to bring to a conclusion. The rebellion and the apostasy and the personal sins of Israel will be done with at this time. The second infinitive, the second thing the Lord will do, is to make an end of sin. No longer will Israel be put under the daily pressures of offering sacrifices for their sins. At the end of the 490 years, when they embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, they will know forgiveness for all of their sins because their sins were paid for at the cross. The third thing the Lord will do is to make atonement for their iniquity. This can only refer to the substitutionary death of Christ. Every Jew who trusts in him will be atoned for by Christ's death. No longer will they work for their salvation. No longer will they be looking for a Messiah, but they will have their sins atoned for at the end of the tribulation period. At the end of those 409 years, they will know that their sins have been forgiven, they've been atoned for, and no longer will they commit sin because they will be translated into the Lord's presence. Now the second triad of things that the Lord must do before the end of the 490 years is marked by the infinitive, to bring in everlasting righteousness. The mind of Israel will be changed. 
it will experience this change of mind when they recognize the Messiah and His righteousness will be imputed to them. No longer will they try to save themselves through the law, through the law but they will embrace a new covenant. Jeremiah spoke about this new covenant in chapter 31 and verse 31 of his book when he said, Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with my people, the house of Israel, and I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. The righteousness of Christ will be imputed to them. They will have a new heart and forgiveness of sins. The fifth thing that the Lord will do is marked by the infinitive to seal up vision and prophecy. No longer will Israel need to consult the prophets. No longer will they have to examine the visions and the prophecies from days of old. All of those will be completed and fulfilled at the moment the Lord Jesus Christ returns. At the end of the 490 years, the the visions and the prophecies will be sealed means completed, done with. Finally, the sixth thing the Lord says that he will do for Israel is shown to us by the infinitive, to anoint, to anoint the most holy place. This refers to the holy of holies in the temple that will be standing on Mount Zion. During the millennium, there will be a millennial temple, the third temple. It will be the place from which the Lord Jesus Christ will rule and reign for 1,000 years. We see this future temple articulated of, spoken of, in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. We read there that there will be the reinstitution of animal sacrifices, not to plead for the forgiveness of sins, but as a memorial to Christ's death on the cross. It will replace the Lord's table. Daniel's prayer now has been completely answered to him by Gabriel. What's going to happen? What's the big picture? At the end of 490 years, that's what it's going to look like for the Jewish people. The Lord's going to restore his people, his city, and the promised land. The sins of Israel will be forgiven. Just as Zechariah predicted, which we looked at a couple of years ago in chapter 12, where God promised, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. They will come to know Christ. I was hoping for an amen there. They will come to know Christ. No more of this nonsense about Israel and who owns the land and what about Jerusalem and and building embassies there. God will be ruling and reigning in Jerusalem, and the Jews will mourn over their bitter choices over the past four centuries. There will be a completion of the desolations. All of those problems in the tribulation will be completed. This anticipates the coming millennial kingdom promise to Israel. The big picture is When are the 490 years over? Or when do they begin? We know when they're over. When do they begin? Verse 25 tells us, So that you know and discern from the issuing of a decree. The 490 years begins when there is a decree issued, according to this text. And that decree is to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, if you have a pen, circle the word until. Underscore it, highlight it. That's the most important word in this whole text. There's going to be a decree issued to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until, until 
the Messiah, the Prince. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And then it will be built again, that is Jerusalem, with plaza and moat, even in the times of distress. The clock starts on the 490 years when this decree is issued. So it's incumbent upon the interpreter, in this case Daniel, to know when the clock begins. The issuing of the decree. But what decree is that? That's been problematic for all Bible students who take the Bible literally. Which decree is this? There were four decrees issued by the rulers over Babylon and Medio Persia. So which one is it referring to? Could it be the decree of Cyrus in 539 BC, which is recorded in both 2 Chronicles and Ezra 1, which decrees that the temple be rebuilt? Or is it the second decree issued by Darius in 518, recorded in Ezra 6, which also decreed the temple to be rebuilt? Or could it be the third decree in 457, which was given by Artaxerxes I, and is recorded in Ezra 7, which talked about the rebuilding of the temple as well. Or could it be the last of the four decrees found in Scripture, issued by Artaxerxes II in 444 B.C., in which it is recorded by Nehemiah in chapter 2 of his book. Now, most evangelical scholars, including myself believe that it is the fourth decree that Gabriel has in mind here. Why is that? It's the only decree that fits the context of this verse written to Daniel. You see, the first three decrees all dealt with the rebuilding of the temple. The third decree mentions the return of the exiles. But the verse states that in the correct decree that it is to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. It will be rebuilt again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Now, if you've ever read Nehemiah and studied through it, as we did here a number of years ago, you'll understand that the city was rebuilt during a time of great upheaval. Enemies from without and enemies from within. They needed a wall built around the city to protect them from invading armies. You can see the picture of a moat. This is in Caesarea along the Mediterranean, which several of us have visited before and will again here coming in June. There was a, there was a moat built around the city of Jerusalem with a high wall. It's not there now. The moat is no longer there now because the centuries have passed. But this decree specifies specifically the building of a plaza and a moat. Now, the Hebrew word that's used here and translated into English as plaza describes the life of the city, a central place where all the people would come and go to the market. The courts were held there. Now, it also talks about a moat. A moat would surround the city and protect the city gates, which are spoken of as well. As you know, city gates would be useless without a wall. Moats would be useless without a wall and city gates. So the idea here in this text is that the city is going to be rebuilt. There's going to be a wall built around the city that has a moat in front of it and a plaza behind it. The moat that's spoken here of it is a trench that's usually filled with water. Some were not. Next in this verse, we see a bit of an oddity. Without explanation, Gabriel divides the 69 weeks into two parts. The 69 weeks would equal 483 years. They're now being divided into 7 weeks and 62 weeks, or, if you will, 49 years and 434 years. The question is why. It's really not answered by the text. But we have historical records which tell us that it took 49 years from the issuing of the decree to rebuild the city of walls, the city walls, uh, which Nehemiah did in 52 days, but it's 49 years from the decree to the finishing by Nehemiah. 
because of the troubled times in which it was all done. It was a difficult task. Now, all this is supposed to happen, okay? The seven weeks, the 49 years, the finishing of the city wall and the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and then 434 more years pass until, circle that word, highlight it, until, that tells us the time that must go by, until the 69 weeks is over, and that will coincide with Messiah the Prince. So the weeks continue until the life of the Messiah comes. His advent, if you will. So we can date the prediction of the coming of the Messiah pretty clearly here. From the issuing of the decree, 483 years, when that ends, that's when the Messiah, the Prince, will be in Israel. As I've already stated, from historical records, we can date Artaxerxes' issuing of his decree to Nehemiah to rebuild the city walls and the city in 444 B.C. Now, why do I go with that decree? Because it passes two tests. The first test is this. The decree must call for rebuilding of the city's defenses. And that includes the wall and the moat. The first three decrees, as I said, fail to pass this test. So 444 B.C. is the decree by Artaxerxes II that we're assuming is the start of the clock of the 490 years. The second test is that the decree starts the prophetic clock of the 483 years that will coincide with the coming Messiah Prince. The only decree that does that is the last one. That passes this test because from the date of 444 B.C., we arrive at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ in Israel. Now, there's been a book written in the past, 100 years ago almost now, by Sir Robert Anderson. His book is entitled The Coming Prince. Now, many agree with this, as I do, and some don't. But let me tell you what the book projects. Anderson projects from the decree issued by Artaxerxes II in 444 B.C. based upon ancient calendars and the scriptures that there are a certain amount of exact days that must pass before the Messiah, the Prince, is in Israel. He comes to this date by taking the ancient calendars, which had a 30-day month. It was based on the solar calendar. A 30-day month equals a 360-day year. So it's rather easy to compute. Take the 360-day year times the 30 days, I'm sorry, times 483 years, so 360 times 483, and you come up with an elapsed time the number of days should be 173,880 days. I'll get it right yet. 173,880 days. As I said, the scriptures use always this solar calendar. They use 360 days for a year. Uh, We know this because when the Bible speaks of the tribulation time, it speaks of 1,260 days, equaling 42 months and seven years is extrapolated from that. So if you divide that, you come up with a 30-day month. Now, most Bible students like myself agree that the decree was issued in the month of Nisan or March. And if we understand the historical records that come down to us from this time period, the decree was issued on what would be Nisan or March 14. So if you take that date and you add 173,880 days, you arrive at the date of April 6th, 32 A.D. Thus, according to Anderson's calculations, after the 69 weeks have been completed, the 483 years That should come to an end on that date, April 6th, 32 OD. And according to Anderson, 
That is the date, and I believe this is to be true, that Jesus presented himself to Israel as their king. This is called the triumphal entry. Jesus offers himself to be the king of the Jews, the Messiah. What are the Jews looking for? The Messiah. Jesus comes just as Zechariah chapter 9 says to Israel. You can identify the coming Messiah because behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foil of a donkey. The Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus, as he approached the city on a donkey, the foil of a colt, a donkey, he stops before entering into the city and he says, speaking to Israel, if you had only known this day, even you, the things which would make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. And then he warned the Jews, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation, the city will be destroyed, made desolate. God marks out, in my opinion, the exact day in which Christ will come and offer himself to Israel, and they will reject him. Luke says they brought their coats and put them on the coat and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading the coats on the, on the road. And as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, that's the beginning of the city of Jerusalem, which we will be at in June, the whole crowd began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. And then quoting directly from Psalm 118.26, which speaks of the Messiah, they shouted out, they shouted, Blessed is the King. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. But some of the Pharisees said to Jesus, Rebuke them, teacher! And he answers, I tell you, if they become silent, the stones will cry out. Clearly, the religious leaders rejected Christ. The ones who were supposed to know the scriptures, they were supposed to know Zechariah. They were supposed to know where Jesus was born. They failed to identify him when he presented himself. In fact, they rejected the prediction of Daniel and Zechariah. Oh, my. Oh, my. Don't you love the word of God? To the exact date, the 69 years have come to fruition and are fulfilled. The Messiah has come and offered himself to be the king of the chosen people, but they reject him. Notice on the screen behind me, as I've said, one week equals seven years. Seventy weeks equal 490 years. The 70 weeks are divided into three time periods. Seven weeks and 62 weeks, or 69 weeks. And then there is one week left. Why is that? One week left. Why is that? It's kind of mysterious. we got 69 weeks gone by. Or 483 years. But what about that last week? That last seven year period? Well, when they rejected Christ, the clock stopped. And I'll show you why in just a minute. But before the clock can restart on that last week to fulfill the 70 years and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ... Gabriel tells them in verse 26 then, then, after, again, circle those, highlight, there's a passage of time, then, after the 62 weeks, it's done, finito, it's stopped, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who has come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Here we see some very important information. This event, spoken of previously the Messiah, the prince is coming, cannot be referring to his death. It had to be an event in his life. And I tell you, it was the triumphal entry. Because here we are told that after that, two events must take place. Then after the 62 weeks. Now, 
he hasn't added the seven years that it took to rebuild the city walls. So it's really 69 weeks, okay? But after the 69 weeks, he is cut off. So there must be an interval here between the 69th week and the 70th week. We see the timing clearly here. Then after, this period of time between the 69th and 70th week is alluded to here. And two things must take place between the 69th week and the 70th week. The first thing is the Messiah will be cut off. That sounds mysterious, doesn't it? It sounds momentous as well. Clearly what takes place in this interval are two events. The first is Jesus Christ must die. The clock has stopped and has, will not restart until we see that in the next verse. But during this interval, Jesus must die. The Messiah must be cut off. And the second stunning event is that the city of Jerusalem will be destroyed. The whole city in the sanctuary will be cut off, will be destroyed. We might ask, why did Israel reject Jesus as their Messiah? He did miracles. He did all sorts of things that pointed to him exclusively. But you know why they did it? Because he was co-opted by the Jewish leaders. They wanted to maintain power. And so in cahoots with the Romans who they manipulated and the people of Jerusalem whom they manipulated, they rejected him. Do you remember the people shouting, we'll have no God but Caesar? Remember that? Or no king but Caesar? They rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and that's why this verse says that the Messiah will have nothing. The Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. This alludes to the truth that Jesus, the King, the Messiah, who is supposed to rule over the land and the people, has nothing. It has not been accomplished as of yet. So what happened after his death? What after he was cut, he was cut off? The Jewish leaders lied about him. The Jewish leaders persecuted his followers. The Jewish leaders killed Stephen and James and hundreds of others. Finally, Rome got sick and tired of their nonsense, their constant rebellion. And in 69 AD, the general named Titus showed up with his Roman legions and they put an end to it by destroying all of, it, all of Jerusalem and taking the people in the dysphoria and moving them around the whole Roman Empire. Titus leveled the city and the temple. Not one stone was left unturned. So it begins. So it begins. This interval, this great parenthesis, which you and I should thank God for. You see, It opened a door for the Gentiles. God stopped working with Israel and he turned his attention to the Gentiles through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The prophetic clock has stopped, thank God, because it brought in the times of the Gentiles and allows you and me to be saved. We call this the church age, the age of grace. And notice that this prophetic clock will not restart until the end comes with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. This enigmatic statement tells us when the end of the 49 years will happen. When the prince of the people, we learn in the same verse, the Antichrist signs a peace treaty, a decree, if you will, with Israel, and that seals the doom for the world and for Israel. Then, at the end of that time, the clock will restart. It will begin to rock and roll real quickly as the seven years, the tribulation, goes by. But Israel will call this time period not the tribulation, but the time of Jacob's troubles. We, the church, those who come to faith during the parentheses between the 69th and 70th week, will be taken, praise the Lord. 
I like to call us gappers. We're gappers. Parenthesis didn't work so good. You and I are in that great gap between his death and his coming. Now, the amillennialists, <laughs> I laugh at them. They teach this nonsense that Jesus came back at the seven, when the 70 AD thing happened in Jerusalem and the town was destroyed. And that Jesus is now ruling and reigning in the hearts of believers. And that the thousand years is just a number to mean a long time. Do you think Jesus is ruling and reigning in your hearts? I've met some believers that I wouldn't say Jesus is reigning in their hearts, would you? I don't think Jesus is over there in the mosque on top of the temple ruling today, do you? Their teaching is just nonsense. Why? Because they... Don't take the Bible literally. They make up whatever they want it to say. It's got hidden meaning. Ooh, what does it mean to you? Jesus said, our God said, through the angel Gabriel, that Daniel would understand and gain insight from it, not wonder what the heck it meant. It's sad when people don't understand the Bible literally, but take it allegorically. That means the text can mean whatever they think it should mean. Clearly, the Bible is pointing out to us the timing of the Lord's return. Lacey Chapel believes in the premillennial, pre-tribulational rapture of the church and the literal second coming of Christ after the tribulation, because we're gappers. We're awaiting the 70th week for our departure. At the start of the 70th week, when that decree happens, we're gone. I'm out of here. Thank God. I don't want to hang around for some tribulation and desolation. Do you? I want to go home to be with my Savior. That's why the word after is so important. After the 69th week and before the 70th week comes... We leave, and then the prince over the people appears. Notice in this text that the people of the prince destroy Jerusalem. Who are these people of the prince? Well, if you go back to the handout I gave you, the fourth great empire that arises is Rome. The people of the prince are part of the Roman Empire, which is revived. That's the meaning of Daniel's visions in chapters 7 and 8, and what I've given to you on the handout. The Roman Empire must be revived for the 70th week as it ensues, and the people of the world will then embrace this prince who will rule over it. Ultimately, a third world war will begin. He will destroy the world and the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel before the Messiah returns. As I've mentioned previously, the Jews were warned about this coming judgment. For example, in Luke chapter, 40, chapter 19, verses 41 through 44, which I've already read to you, they recognize their failure at embracing the Lord Jesus Christ and the desolation that will be caused. Now, back to our verse, we see this coincides with that, that the end will come like a flood. In the end, there will be war and desolations which are determined. When you see the word flood, what do you think of? Noah's flood, the water? Did you know the Bible uses that word differently? In Nahum chapter 1 and verse 8, He uses it of the outpouring of the wrath of God. I'm going with the prophets who were brothers with one another. In Nahum 1, he says, With an overwhelming flood, same word, he, that is God, will make a complete end of the sight. So the term flood is used as a figure of speech for a torrent of judgment. For the rejection of Jesus Christ, the land, the nation, the people, the temple, and all of that will be 
destroyed or suffer desolation, according to this text, for the rejection of Christ. They reject Jesus and they embrace the prince of darkness. Notice in verse 27, the pronoun he. Now, unfortunately, some translations have it as it. That's because it appears in the neuter form, but it should be he. Gabriel tells Daniel that he, that is the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, that's the middle of the seven years, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. On the, week of, on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. A lot of desolation going on there, don't you think? The question we need to answer is, who's making this covenant? Who's the he? And who are the many? I suggest to you, based on scriptural text, that the he is the Antichrist. We know this is true because of what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 when he warns, Do not be shaken by a letter, as if it is from us, to the effect that states, The day of the Lord has come! That's what I call fake news. Because the day of the Lord hadn't come. Let no one in any way deceive you with this fake news, for it will not come, it will not come, it will not come, unless the apostasy come first and the man of lawlessness must be revealed, the son of destruction, he who opposes God and exalts himself as an even so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God and displays himself as God. There it is. Let me remind you that nothing like this remotely even happened in 70 AD. So it has to be future. This coming man called the man of lawlessness, the man of destruction, will be revealed. I don't know anyone that's been revealed like that except for Obama. Or was it Kessinger? Or is it Trump? Or is it Netanyahu? I don't know who it is, do you? Paul says this man of lawlessness, this man who is the son of destruction, he will oppose God and exalt himself above him and demand to be an object of worship of the world. He will even go into the holy place, the new temple, and sit on the seat and demand to be worshipped. I haven't seen that happen yet, have you? He will pro- proclaim himself as God. He will take his seat in the temple. Okay, so he is the Antichrist, the beast. So who are the many? None other than the foolish Jewish people themselves. Israel just keeps on rejecting Jesus, and they embrace the devil himself. Now, this could be a friendship treaty. It could be a non-aggression treaty. It could be a guarantee of military protection by the revived Roman Empire. We don't know. What we do know is that during this gap between the 69th and the 70th year, Israel must come back together in the land. And that happened in 1948. It continues today. At the beginning, the start of the clock, the beginning of the 70th week happens when they make this treaty, this deal with the Antichrist, who's probably going to be some world leader from a European country. The revived Roman Empire, according to Daniel 7 and 8. He will create a one-world government. He will rule the world. He will turn his guns on the world that doesn't follow him and take them by force. And in the middle of the seven years, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. You see, the millennial kingdom is up and operating. He's made this deal, and the Jews are back happy just killing all their lambs and partridges to God while they continue to reject the Lord Jesus Christ. He not only will achieve a one-world government with him as the head, but he will try to create a one-world religion. And that's when he turns on Israel in the middle of the tribulation after three and a half years, 1260 days, 42 months, and he will stop the Jews in their tracks from offering their daily sacrifices to God. I love symmetry, don't you? When's Daniel praying? 
in the middle of a grain offering that's supposed to be going on. When does the devil, the Antichrist, renege on his deal? In the middle of a grain offering. Matthew 24, verse 15, Jesus says this, When you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, that is the Antichrist, proclaiming himself to be God, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will, but immediately after that, the tribulation of those days. The great tribulation will start. And how does Jesus describe it? The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fail from the, fall from the sky and the powers of heaven will be shaken. And the sign of the Son of Man will appear and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky. At the end of the tribulation they will see the Lord Jesus and he will send forth his angels in a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Jesus will come back to defeat his enemy, Satan. Well, today, Israel's back in the promised land. We should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. The temple has not been rebuilt, but they've got plans. Sacrifices have not been reinstituted, but they've got plans. The 70th week has not started yet, but we wait. It's coming soon. So what does this mean to you and me? How can we apply this to ourselves? First of all, we must recognize that God has a program for Israel and God has a program for the church and we should never mix them up. We must understand that we are gappers. Praise God for the times of the Gentiles. That's the only reason that we're saved. We must continue to work as we await the Lord's return. We live in the church age, the age of grace, but God has called us to be his people, to take the message of the gospel to the world, including to the Jews. But time is short. Jesus is coming soon, very soon. You have been warned. You are privy to the prophetic calendar. You know the timing of his coming. So make the most of your time, for the days are evil. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this truth. Thank you, Lord. For prophecy, help us to understand it, to gain insight from it, and to live according to it. May the Lord Jesus come quickly, we pray in his name. Amen.